0: that's reliable, we are at the end of 1 Thessalonians, the very last uh, section of the book, and then uh, next week we will start in on 2 Thessalonians. Let's turn to the end, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 28. We're going to read these uh, and listen carefully. This is God's Word. These are verses that we tend to skip over because they're at the end. He's just, you know, we read them as always, just saying goodbye. Let's get on to all the more important stuff. But we'll find there's a lot of good stuff here as well. Listen carefully, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verses 23 to 28. This is the Word of God. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have come to your word again this morning. We find we still need to learn a lot about what it means to be made holy. We don't understand how someone as sinful as we are could ever be made to be like Jesus. It seems too difficult. So Lord, once again... Open our eyes and ears to truly hear and understand and apply this word to our lives. Use it to sanctify us. Do this for each of us this morning in his name and for his glory. Amen. Perry Noble is the uh, pastor of New Spring Church in Anderson, South Carolina. He writes a really insightful blog, which I've come to appreciate. And uh, this week he wrote the following about learning about God from the strange behavior of his three-year-old daughter. So he writes this. He said, On Sunday I came home and changed clothes and put a load of clothes in the wash and went into the kitchen to get some food ready. About a minute later, uh, Carice, who's his toddler daughter, came into the room with a pair of my underwear over her head. You can get this mental image of boxers as a hat. Now let's stop here for just a second and admit underwear, no matter how they're designed, are gross. There's just no way around it. And so I told her, "Uh, "Carice, could you please take Daddy's underwear off your head and go put them in the dirty clothes?" So she left the kitchen, but about a minute later she walked back in with my underwear still on her head, and I think she was singing. It's caused me to act with a little more urgency. I know she thought what she was doing was cute, but it already caused me to throw up in my mouth just a little, and I wanted her to stop. So I once again expressed my desire for her uh, to repent of underwear head and do what I told her, to which she walked out of the room as if she intended on doing what I said. But instead of obeying me, she walked into the living room and began to dance, with my underwear still on her head. I began walking toward her, and my voice became a touch more elevated. She finally got the point and took my drawers off her noggin. I told her to put them away, and although she wasn't fond of the idea, she obeyed. He said, I've thought about this episode a lot this week, and I've concluded the following. One, many times what we see as fun and harmless, our Heavenly Father sees as something far worse. Two, just like I don't want Carice to stay in a nasty situation, our Heavenly Father wants for us to repent of sin because he knows the destruction that it will eventually bring. Three, just like Carice, many times we delay obedience because of our perceived enjoyment and our misguided thoughts that God is really just out to ruin our lives. The sooner we obey God, the sooner we're able to escape what has us blinded. Uh, five, the voice of the Father, and not our own voice, is the one we should be obsessed with. And six, his kindness and love, not anger and hatred, is the reason he wants this junk out of our lives. Just some thoughts that God is using my daughter to teach me. And I thought about that, and I, you know, it's hard to get that picture out of your head of a little girl dancing with boxers on her head. But what does a funny story like that have to do with 1 Thessalonians 5? Quite a bit, actually. Because this passage is about sanctification, which is the process of increasing holiness in our lives. Last week, Rich mentioned that in the 10 verses prior to these, there was something like 19 different commands. Now, I think for a lot of us, when we see those lists of commands, they can be a little discouraging. Because very quickly we realize we're not keeping them nearly as well as we should be. And sadly, I think that's a pretty common reaction when we read verses, uh, like we read last week, 1 Thessalonians five fifteen through 18 See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And you read that, and you think, yeah, I know that's good stuff, and I know that's what God wants, and I try to do that, but to tell the truth, there's a lot of times when I don't seek to do good, when I don't rejoice always, when I don't pray constantly, when I don't give thanks. And it kind of feels like I'm walking around with dirty underwear on my head. And worse yet, it doesn't bother me a whole lot because I've gotten so used to it. And you and I can wind up feeling like some sort of loser Christians. That's not the intent of Paul's letter. He doesn't want us to either feel or act like loser Christians. And so he wants us to know that our sanctification doesn't totally depend on us. There's another player in the sanctification process, and that's God himself, working in us through his Spirit to make us more and more like his Son, Jesus. And so Paul starts by telling us that he is praying for our sanctification. That should be the first blank there, verse 23 and 24, praying for our sanctification. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And immediately we're confronted with this word that is uncommon in our normal vocabulary. It's the word sanctify. It means to be set apart. It's a word that comes from the word holy. When something is sanctified, it was devoted to God's service. And so here, Paul is praying for God to make us uh, like those who are set apart. If you will, he's praying that God would help us to be more like Jesus. And in theological terms, um, this process of becoming set apart uh, for God It's called sanctification. It's what Paul may have been thinking about when he wrote in uh, Romans 8, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's easy to get hung up on that word predestined and miss what God has predestined us for, what he has predestined us to be. And he desires that we be conformed to the likeness of his son, to be part of God's family. So here's the question. How does this happen? And I think there's at least two principles from these verses on what it means to grow up to be like Jesus. And the first principle is to honor Christ fully in all that we do and are. Paul wants us to be set apart through and through. He wants us to belong to God in our spirit, soul, and body. And some people have made a big deal about the fact that Paul here talks about spirit, soul, and body. They believe that that means there's really three parts to man. However, if you search the scriptures, this is the only time that those three words are used together. Jesus tells us in Mark 12, 30, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And I think he's using it in that sense, in that he's not trying to Uh, give us an anthropology of what man is like. He's just trying to say the whole person. And in most cases, the the Bible talks about body and soul, or flesh and spirit. So don't read too much into Paul's words uh, so that you miss the point. His point is that a person becoming like Jesus uh, is like Jesus when they honor Christ in every part of life. And that's important for a couple of reasons. First, it counters the tendency that we have to compartmentalize our faith. to Just be, you know, Christians at uh, church on Sunday or when we go to a small group Bible study, and the rest of the time, not so much. And, uh, you know, sometimes we're, we're seemingly very godly at church, but not so godly at work. Uh, we're Christian when we're with one group of people, our Christian friends, But not so Christian when we're with another group of people, our non-Christian friends. And if you think about it, logically, I hope it sounds somewhat ridiculous uh, to you. But unfortunately, people can see when there's a, a lack of cohesion in our life and in our words and how we behave. And there's an incongruity to our activity. That when we function as if we're two different people. And sometimes uh, people uh, sort of rationalize that. They say faith is faith and fun is fun. But the Bible consistently points out that if Jesus is not Lord of all, then he's really not Lord at all in your life. So it sort of keeps us from compartmentalizing our faith. Second, it contradicts the notion that salvation is a one-time affair. You know, on occasion, uh, it's easy to get the impression from Christianity, particularly in America, that the Christian faith involves saying a prayer or performing some act or having some experience. When in reality, trusting Christ is about having a whole new orientation and a whole new passion for life. It's an ongoing and continual process. Faith is not simply an agreement we make with God. You died for me and I received that provision. Saving faith is entering into a relationship an ongoing, continuing relationship with God. In his book, The Joyful Christian, uh, C.S. Lewis writes, and I thought this was a good demonstration, he he says, uh, when I was a child, I often had a toothache. And I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me get to sleep. But I didn't go to my mother, at least not until the pain became very bad. And the reason I didn't go was this. I didn't doubt she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew she'd take me to the dentist the next morning. And I couldn't get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I didn't want. I wanted immediate relief from my pain, but I couldn't get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists, and I knew they would start fiddling around with all sorts of other teeth which hadn't yet begun to ache. And what he's saying is, Our Lord is like dentists. You know, dozens of people go to God to be cured or fixed of some particular problem. And Jesus can cure that problem, whatever it is, but he won't stop there. God is not content simply to remove the pain from your life. He wants to deal with the true problem, your heart. So he gets in your life and starts messing around with all sorts of stuff. You just wanted him to fix this one thing. And he gets in there and it's all fair game. Kind of like the dentist. So this process of holiness or sanctification, the Bible talks about in several different ways. Primarily three ways, three senses, you might say. The first one is uh, sort of past tense, what we call positional sanctification. Hebrews 10 tells us, and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's speaking of sanctification or holiness in the past tense. And in this dimension of sanctification, when uh, when Christ's sacrifice is applied to our life, God declares us to be holy. It's like a judge declaring us not guilty. The issue's settled. The debt is paid. Another way you might look at it, you know, you uh, injure your knee badly. You go to the doctor, it needs surgery, so you have surgery, and uh, you wake up after surgery. I'm using knee because that's my experience. I've played this game many times with the surgeon and my knee, and... um, so you talk to the surgeon after the operation and uh, if you have a good surgeon he'll tell you everything goes well, went well uh, it's all fine the damage is all repaired and in that sense you're already healed but second there is a, a, a perfect sanctification or a future sanctification the first one's sort of past tense you came to Christ and God declared you you have been sanctified this one's for the future Uh, because the Bible talks about that day when we will be made perfect. When we die, we'll be freed from our sinful state. Our desires will be adjusted. Our struggles will be conquered. Our hearts will be pure. Now, most of us will admit we haven't arrived at this point of being perfectly holy uh, just quite yet. Um, And to go back to the surgical uh, illustration, you know, after the surgery, you are healed. The injury was repaired, but you still can't walk. You know, when you wake up, you don't just hop out of bed and walk out. You know, your leg's all swollen and it hurts, and you look forward to that day sometime in the future when once again you'll be able to walk without any pain or limitation. You know, that future day when you'd be completely healed. And that's sort of that future sanctification. The day is coming when you will be completely healed, when you'll be made perfect. But third, there is uh, what we call practical sanctification. And that's what takes place between the first two. Okay, between the past and the future, there's the present. That's practical sanctification. Philippians 2.12, uh, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We're to apply our salvation to daily life. This is what Paul has been urging us throughout all these commands in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. We've had a whole long list of commands in the last two chapters. And basically what Paul is telling the Thessalonians and us is he wants us to apply our salvation to everyday life. And so to go back again to the surgery illustration, practical sanctification is essentially physical therapy. Okay, there's discipline, there's exercise, there's skills you need to relearn. And so we have been sanctified, we will be sanctified, and we are being sanctified. All are true at the same time, and we should be seeking all three. So the first principle is that we should honor Christ fully. The second principle that we get from these verses is to put our confidence and trust in God and not in ourselves. Because if you think about it, you know, that first principle said honor God fully in all that we do and are. And if you really think about it, you know, that just sounds way better on paper than it works out in life. I mean, I want you to leave today and go out and honor Christ fully in all that you do and are. And you may make it to the parking lot. (laughs) Probably not probably won't make it to the end of the service. You know, if you're like me, you know, you look at your life and you feel like Paul in Romans 7. He says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, I do the very thing I hate, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And a lot of times we feel like that. We're doing something we know we shouldn't be doing, but we're doing it. And stuff that we know we should be doing... You know, that's not even on the schedule. You know, and I look at myself in the mirror and I see that I'm a long way from being holy. I get angry over petty things. I get frustrated and take it out on others. My mind wanders to places I wish it wouldn't go. My appetites and desires seem to control me sometimes. And like a person with the injured leg, you know, I sometimes wonder if it really has been fixed, if it really has been healed. You know? And I wonder if it's true. Have I really been made right with God? Am I really healed of my sinful past? Notice again the words of Paul. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and how does it end? He will surely do it. Verse 24 ought to be one of our favorite verses in the Bible. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. We're not in this alone. God doesn't expect us to achieve this holiness in our own strength. We don't have the strength to become holy in and of ourselves. God is the one who will sanctify us. God is the one who will keep us that word where it says to be kept blameless, the pictures of putting something under guard. God is keeping us. He's committed to our growth and development. He's given us His Holy Spirit to essentially act somewhat like the physical therapist. You know, the Spirit prays for us and groans uh, too deep for words. He guides us, he equips us with various, uh, various spiritual gifts. He comforts us. He's working to develop. Christ-like character in our lives. And like a good coach, he's guiding our development. The Lord is giving us direction and instruction. Our job is to learn to trust the wisdom of God. Much like we would trust the wisdom of the physical therapist. Even though he or she may seem like a masochist bent on our destruction. (laughs) Don't tell that to my physical therapist because I'm probably going to see them again someday, you know, because you get in there, you can't walk, you're on crutches, you know, your knees all bandaged, and they say, you know, do something like this, and, you know, they bend it, and you're like, what is wrong with you people, you know, but a lot of times the Holy Spirit in building Christ-like character is doing these uncomfortable things and bending us in ways that we're kind of like, I'm not supposed to bend that way, and always say, oh, yes, you are, it's fine, it'll be great, you know, and, um, and that's, that's the way it happens. Because, you know, God's not so much concerned about us mimicking certain behaviors as it is about us deepening our relationship with Him and deepening our dependence upon Him. Paul is saying the decisive thing there in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. And right thinking says God's faithfulness combined with God's call proves he will do it he who calls you as faithful he will surely do it what's the it the it that he's going to do is what paul's been commanding and what he's been praying for namely our sanctification god will do it so my conclusion is that first thessalonians 5 verses 23 and 24 really does teach that god is the one who is sanctifying us now He does it through commandments and through God's Word and through the work of the Spirit and through incentives that appeal to our minds and to our motives. And he does it through prayer. And however he does it and however slowly it seems that it comes and however imperfect we feel, the main thing is that God does it and we have the promise that he will surely do it. That's the ground of our, insur- our assurance. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Assurance doesn't come from making holiness optional. It comes from knowing and trusting that God is faithful. So Paul starts out by praying for our sanctification. Remember, up to now, he's given us these long lists of commands, you know, which sound really hard. But then he prays for our sanctification and reminds us that God is the one. Who is faithful and God is the one who's going to do it. But having prayed for us, he sort of turns the tables uh, in the next three verses by asking us to pray and to do. By asking us to pray and to do. Verse 25 Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. You know, we can read over that. It's pretty simple, pretty direct. Know what he wants. But remember, Paul's a great theologian, and he's a great pastor, and he closes his letter with several requests. And first and foremost, he asks for prayer. And we're going to come back to that. And then he tells the church to greet each other warmly, you know, as Mideasterners uh, often do, with a kiss. The equivalent in our culture of shaking hands or giving hugs was common in Paul's culture, as in many cultures, in many parts of the world today, Uh, to greet friends with a kiss on the cheek. Men greeted men this way, women greeted women this way, and it communicated personal affection, not romantic love. And by urging this practice, Paul's encouraging an outward physical expression of true Christian love in a form that's culturally acceptable in his day. The kiss was to be holy, not passionate. Now, there are ways that we can encourage one another with a touch that are not inappropriate. Yes, you have to be careful. Yes, you have to be trusted by the other person. But yes, you can touch people so that they're encouraged and not offended. And the reality is there's a lot of people in our world today who are dying for a hug there is this sense of Christian affection that Paul wants us to develop. And so he says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Then he tells them to make sure that everyone hears what Paul has written. He says, I'm putting you under oath to make sure this letter is read to the whole congregation. You've got to remember, in his day and time, there was a lot of people who couldn't read. And it wasn't like everybody had their own copy of the letter. There's one letter. And reading that aloud is the only way everyone in the congregation could learn from it. A friend told me probably the best application of this verse is he said, me to just get up here this morning and read the whole letter like it would have been read back then. However, it's the first request, I think, that's key. And that's the request. Pray for us. Paul understood life's difficult. He understood we're under assault from our internal nature, from the enemies of the gospel, from the devil himself. And Jesus understood the power and the importance of prayer. In the gospels, we read of Jesus spending an entire night in prayer. Prayer is our lifeline to the Father. And so if we're going to grow to be like Jesus, first, we must pray. We must pray. You know, prayer is like uh, communication in marriage. You can't grow in Christ's likeness if you don't spend time in prayer, uh, just like you can't grow in a relationship, any relationship, if you don't communicate with each other. Prayer puts us in touch with the heart of God. It helps to renew our focus. It opens our hearts to the work of God's Spirit. And we need to understand the truth of what Jesus said in John 15. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from me you can do nothing. You know, our strength is not found in our programs or our talents or our persuasive words or our graphics or our vision statements or our organizational charts. Our strength's in the Lord. And yes, we can make slick presentations, but only God can change hearts. And we can make strong arguments, but only God can generate faith. And we can work hard, but only God can bring fruit from that labor. And we can build buildings, but only God can empower ministry. And we can develop insightful theories, but only God is truth. And apart from the Lord, we're like a car without an engine. We can look good on the outside, but we're powerless on the inside. We must pray. Second, we must seek prayer. You know, a lot of times we ask for prayer when? When something bad happens. You know, we have a health problem or somebody we know has a health problem. And I think uh, Frank went over it in the adult Sunday school class this morning. We have a job or a financial problem um, or we have some other sort of relational problem, you know, either in or outside our family. And so that happens. They'll you know, pray for me, you know, because I'm having knee surgery again. Or pray for me because I'm not getting along with my spouse. Or pray for me because my boss is a jerk. You know, I'm never a jerk there, but he is. But you see, Paul never passes up an opportunity to ask others to pray for him. And here, he doesn't say, tell them exactly how to pray. He tells them how he prayed for them. And he says, pray for us. You know, when we ask for prayer, we're asking people to help support us because we know our weakness. When we seek prayer, we're becoming more accountable to those around us. I think one of the reasons we don't ask for prayer, except for the real obvious things, is because we don't want to admit weakness. We don't want to admit that we can't do this in our own strength. And when we hide our needs, we end up pretending in every area of life. So we pray, we seek prayer. Third, pray for others. Pray for others. You know, there's not a single person in this room that doesn't need your prayers. Just as you need the prayers of those around you, so they need your prayers. And it's important we pray for those in a crisis, and God's strength can uh, see people through horrible times, and God's ability to heal exceeds that of the doctors. But we need to pray before the crisis ends. Uh, comes. We need to pray before the crises hit. We need to pray that God would shield us from evil, that he would help us to resist temptation, that he develop within us an appetite for his glory. We need to pray for each other that the God of peace himself would sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to pray that people would be reminded that he who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Make a note of the people sitting around you uh, this morning. Write their names down and make a point to pray this prayer for those people this week. And if you don't know their names, just write down a description. You know, the lady in the blue dress, the man who fell asleep, Etc. You know, God knows who you're talking about. You may not even know what their needs are, but God does. Pray this prayer that Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. Pray this prayer on their behalf. Ask God to help them be set apart for service. And finally, after praying for us and asking us to pray, the apostle blesses us with grace. He blesses us with grace. Very simply, he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. A concluding reference to grace is almost Paul's signature. I mean, so central is it to his whole theology. He had begun the letter all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, by wishing them grace, and now he ends it in the same way. It's not an empty conventional formula. Grace is the heart of the gospel, the heart of God. And if a local church is to become a gospel church, it must not only receive the gospel and pass it on, but also embody it in a community life of loving each other and praying for each other. And nothing but the grace of God can accomplish that. Now, as I was uh, sort of thinking about all this and mulling it over, and I was wondering, what does all this really look like? What does it look like when people are really being sanctified? What does it look like when people are increasing in holiness? And lo and behold, that day I received a prayer letter from some of my favorite missionaries, Wallace and Barbara Pouncey. And I'm thinking they've got to be early 70s about now. I'm not really sure. Uh, And I think I know a little bit better what all this is supposed to look like having heard from them. Wallace and Barbara Pouncey served as missionaries in South America for many, many years. And due to their age and health issues, they accepted an assignment a few years ago to serve retired missionaries at the New Tribes Mission Home in Sanford, Florida. Now, some of those retired missionaries are younger than they are. But they're there serving them, and this week I received their latest prayer letter. And as I read it, I thought, what a great illustration of what verses 23 and 24 look like in somebody's life. Listen to what Wallace writes. He says, We love being able to minister as your missionaries here at NTN Homes. Each new day presents us with opportunities to be a blessing to God's retired saints that have given so many years of serving Him and now need to be served. We try to do things above and beyond the required job description. This summer, I planted 18 tomato plants to be able to provide fresh homegrown tomatoes to our retirees. Many are on fixed incomes, and to pay almost $2 a pound for tomatoes is more than they can afford. God blessed those 18 plants beyond belief. We had loads of tomatoes to share. Some we put out so anyone could get some. Others I would take and put on the front porches of others that I knew really needed them. It's been a lot of work, but it sure has been worth it. One resident told me that she and her husband never bought tomatoes because they cost so much, and for them to find six huge tomatoes on their doorstep was indeed a blessing from God. Speaking about needs, I was doing a maintenance job in one widow's duplex. Her husband had recently passed away. And as I was working, I asked her how she was doing financially. I'm on the deacon's board here, And part of our ministry is keeping tabs on needs uh, with our folks. And she related this story to me. She said, Wallace, back when my husband was nearing the end, things were kind of tough for me financially. And then you guys shared $300 with me to help with whatever I needed. At that time, all of our funds were being taken for my husband and his medical care, and I was eating bread from the bread room. But praise the Lord, I never went without eating even if it was just bread. He is faithful, always has been, and always will be. And Wallace writes, I thought of Proverbs 38, keep falsehood and lies far from me, give me neither poverty or riches, but give me only my daily bread. Here was a retired missionary woman who gave years of loyal service to the Lord, and even though she was eating just bread, she never complained yet remained loyal and is still faithful today to her Lord. She just views it as a time to be drawn closer to God. There are more stories like this that make it a joy for us to serve here. Thank you for your support that makes this possible. We love each of you dearly, and we pray for you. Until next time, Wallace for Barbara. And I read that, and I thought, in some small way, that's what sanctification looks like. And that's how we're supposed to be living. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close.